I am particularly excited about preaching today's sermon. Um, we have come to one of the most important texts, the most important chapters, not just in the book of Acts, but we've come to one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible, and that's Acts chapter 10. Now, the reason why Acts chapter 10 is such an essential um, chapter in the Bible is because all throughout our text, all throughout the history of, of the Jews and the Gentiles at this point, there is this almost invisible tug of war going on between them in how they all relate to God. And so we see in the past, it seems as if the Jews had some particular favor with God simply because they were descendants of Israel, simply because they had been crucified according to the covenant and the promise which had been made to Abraham. And this struggle in particular, this tug of war that's happening is going to keep happening even among the church. And we're actually going to see quite um, later that Paul is going to address this even further as this continues. But the reason why Acts 10 is so essential, not just to the Jews and the Gentiles, but all of us, is because everybody in this room, unless I don't know something, is a Gentile. Every one of us was born outside of the family of what some people believe to be the family of God. Nobody in here is a descendant of the Israelites. So every one of us in this room is a Gentile. Now, because of the goodness and the providence and the sovereignty of God, he did not relegate us to, to nothingness because we were born outside of the heritage of the Jews. But rather, for us, he has made an opportunity through his son, Jesus Christ, for us all to be entered into the kingdom of God, into the family of faith. Now, we don't necessarily see this when we first look at this story with Cornelius, but the, the ramifications for this text apply to all of us. Hence, the reason why we went with the sermon title today, The Impartial God, because I think that may be one of the most underutilized aspects of God's nature is that he is impartial. Now, some of you may full well know enough about us to know that we are reformed and we believe in the doctrine of election. And you would say, well, if God is the one who is choosing, who is saved, then he is not impartial because he chooses some and doesn't choose others. Therefore, God does so on the basis of partiality. But that's not the case, because the Bible tells us, Paul tells us in Romans 9, that before Jacob and Esau had done any works, good or evil, he chose one over the other, but not on the basis of their works, but based on him who calls. That is the impartiality of God, which is that he doesn't look at any of the external factors of who we are to define our relationship with him. There is one thing that will bring us all in common, whether we are Israelites or Gentiles, and that will be that we have a common bloodline found in Jesus Christ. And so nothing perhaps encapsulate that better than this text today with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. 
And God is going to use somebody in particular who had struggled accepting this reality because here we have Peter, who's going to be featured in our text today, who, as we know, has struggled probably more than anybody accepting where his Judaism stops and his Christianity begins. There is this tug of war between him knowing what he is now in Christ, but who he is um, ethnically as well. Now, the reason why Peter has this struggle in a way that Paul doesn't is because all of Paul's life, he has studied Judaism. He is a very intellectual man. He is very wise. God is revealing to him all these mysteries. That's not the case with Peter. Peter is not intelligent. Peter is not bright. Peter is not deep. Peter was a fisherman. And God pulled him from the sea and made him a disciple and then educated him. But he was a fisherman who was devout but didn't have the intelligence to see what Paul was able to see. And so in our text today, what we're going to see, we're going to begin and then finish later. But we're going to begin today seeing how Cornelius is going to be the vessel by which God communicates to Peter that salvation is not for the Jews alone, but because of Jesus Christ, that the whole family of faith has now been opened to any of us who would believe. Now, Chris and I have been watching this television show, and by we, she started it, and then I jumped on, and I don't like it very much other than this. It's called Greenleaf. I don't know if y'all have ever heard of that show, but it is a show that is that follows this family whose pastor is this this well-known guy, older guy, and they pass this very large church. Now, one of the things that you notice about that family, the Greenleaf family, is that they believe that they have been particularly favored by God in a way that nobody else has been favored. Thereby, they think that all of the favor that comes to them comes regardless of their wickedness. It comes regardless of their sin. It comes regardless of the impurity of their heart. Now, the contrary is also true is that because they think that regardless of what they do, because their last name is Greenleaf, God favors them in a way that he doesn't favor anybody else. They are also hyper judgmental of everybody else whose name isn't Greenleaf, which means the judgment that was due to them is poured out on everybody else because they weren't born in the right family. Now, this is going to be the struggle for many of the Jews, and we're really going to get into it deeply today, because many of them believe that because they were born into the right family, regardless of what was happening in their hearts, that they had a position that nobody else had. But I love what God is going to do through Peter and Cornelius today. He is going to absolutely explode that argument. And he's going to show us that the nature of salvation comes not, again, based on any human exertion or will, but it comes because of the grace and goodness of an impartial God. So I pray that as we jump in our text today, we will be able to see how good it is for us that God is impartial in whom he saves. Jump with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 1. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, 
of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you um, for the rich truth in Acts chapter 10. God, we thank you that you are, in fact, impartial, God, that you judge us with all impartiality. But, God, that you have opened um, for us and given for us every opportunity, no matter where we come from, no matter what our gender is, no matter what our descendants are, that you have given us all the equal opportunity for salvation. And that is through the commonality of the bloodline of Jesus Christ. So, God, we thank you that even those of us who are Gentiles, who were born outside of what we thought was the family of faith, God, that you have adopted us as your sons and daughters. Lord, please reveal us today what the importance is that you are the impartial God. It is in Jesus name we pray. Amen. So Luke introduces us fairly quickly here to a man named Cornelius. But then when he introduces us to Cornelius, he gives us a few qualifying details about who Cornelius is. The first thing that he mentions is that he is a centurion. Now, I believe because I know the way Luke writes that any detail that he mentions, he mentions with great intent is not by accident. He mentions that this man Cornelius is in fact a centurion. So let me tell you why that's important. Centurions, first of all, are Gentiles. So we know that Cornelius is not a Jew. That's going to be really important in a second. He is a Gentile man, but not just any kind of Gentile man. He is a centurion soldier who was a part of the Italian cohort. Now, we don't have the point of reference for this, but that cohort would have been made of about 600,000 men, of which Cornelius had scaled the heights of rank in that military. He's one of the highest ranking soldiers for Caesar. Now, in order to be a centurion, centurions are very prudent people. They're very disciplined men. They have a set of skills, but also a set of morals that they abide by heavily. So we know that he is a man who is accustomed to discipline, though he is outside of the Jewish family. He is a man who is a Gentile, but who has a very prudent and disciplined life, but he's also a part of one of the most significant cohorts, the Italian cohort, which is made of about 600,000 men. He was also probably formerly a freedman. He was also a freedman, formerly a slave. He had probably gained his freedom. So what we know about Cornelius is that he is a man of great dignity. He is a, a man of great prudence. He is a man of great respect. And so as he's mentioned, Luke doesn't just mention that he's a centurion, but he also calls him a devout man. 
Now, the reason he's using this term, he calls him a devout man. And then he says who feared God is because in this time there are three categories of people. And this is really significant. I'm going to explain why. But there are three categories of people. There are the Jews. There are the Gentiles and there are the God fearers. The Jews are those people who believe that they, because they were born according to the right lineage, because they could trace their heritage back to an original 12 tribe, that they had a position with God that nobody else had. And that was because they were given the oracles of the law. The other group that you have is the group that we all belong to, which is the Gentile group. Those are the people who did not receive the law, who were not Jews, who did not live according to the custom of the Jews. And then you have another group, and those are the God-fearers. And that is where we find Cornelius. Now, the way that Luke describes him is in three different ways. He says that he is a devout man, he gave alms, and he prayed continually. Now, let me explain to you what the God-fearers were so that we can have the right context. We have seen on two separate occasions where the Holy Spirit falls because of the preaching of the apostles. And we see how that specifically impacts certain groups of people who are able to hear that. Some who had also heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and some who had just heard of the baptism according to John the Baptist. And what they were trying to do in the establishment of the New Testament church is merge these understandings of John's baptism of repentance and the redemption that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit. But now there were also a group of people who had not heard of John's baptism. There was also a group of people who had not heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Cornelius very likely would have been one of those people. So how in the world is Luke able to call him a devout man, though he knows nothing about the gospel of Jesus and though he knows nothing even about John's baptism? How is he called a devout man? It's because of what he was devoting himself to. He wasn't a converted Christian because he didn't hear the gospel, but he had devoted himself to the heritage of the Jews. So let me give you a great explanation. You have a man who is a Gentile who had no obligation to the law. He had not been given the law. He didn't know the law. He was not born being raised as Peter and Paul would have been, been trained in the knowledge of the law. He has no clue about that. But somewhere along the lines, perhaps because he is a centurion, perhaps because he is a devout man who is prudent and disciplined, he realizes in his heart that there is a moral code greater than himself. That there is a moral judge by which we will all have to answer to. And perhaps he realizes that. And when he realizes that, he finds this code, these ten laws, according to the Jews, by which he disciplines his life. Now, he is not fully, culturally a Jewish man. He obviously was going to the temple. We see that he is giving alms. We see that he is at least, at least upholding the Ten Commandments. But he wasn't circumcised. 
Now, the reason why he, is, he isn't circumcised, just in case you're wondering, why doesn't he just go the whole mile? Because it's one thing to be circumcised as an infant. It's another thing to be circumcised as an adult. And I guarantee you, he was probably, like many other God-fearers, not willing to go that extra step. But what he does is knowing that the moral code of the law is right, he devotes himself to it. And it's beautiful. But I want you to understand this, too. In Romans, Paul makes it clear the relationship between the law and sin. He says, I would not have known what it is to covet if I had not read in the law, do not covet. And he says, it aroused in me all types of covetousness. He says, but it's not the law that is unrighteous. It is not the law that is sinful. He says, it is me who is sinful. And in my desire to be obedient to the law, the law aroused in me desires that I didn't even know I had because I was told not to do it. And I saw that I shouldn't do it and the law aroused that in me. But he makes the point, but it's not the law's fault. It's me. It is the wickedness of who I am. So what he says is that the law is good. But what he's also saying is, is that if you subject yourself to a higher law, that is the moral law of God, you do not need stone tablets to tell you not to murder somebody. And this is the great mistake of the Jews. But this is also where our brother Cornelius is found faithful. Many of those Jews thought because they knew what was written on the tablets. Though they had to be reminded not to do wrong by God simply because it was written, that it had been written on stone, but it hadn't permeated their stony hearts. And so the great difference with Cornelius is that the law that he is abiding to is not just a tablet by which he respects, but it is a law that has been written on his heart. And so his desire to be obedient to God is not to gain anything from God, but it is to regulate his life as a sinful man in a sinful world. Now, when you hear this and you say, well, wait a minute, you're telling me that God considered this man devout and a good man just because he upheld the law? That seems to be works-based salvation. That seems that he worked harder, he was more diligent, he was more prudent, he was more disciplined, thereby God accepted him. But you were wrong. God created in him the desire to a higher moral judge than himself. Cornelius can do that for himself. It was God who did it for him. And what God does to him in his grace is provide him with a moral code by which he lives by and he dedicates himself to. But the difference with Cornelius is that it was his desire to be pleasing to God that bore in him an obedience to God. That's the difference. 
not just with the Jews, but also with many of us. There is born in us a desire to not go to hell. Therefore, we say we obey. But if our desire to be obedient to God's law is not born in a desire to be pleasing to him because we love him. Then we are no different than the people who think that God judges on the basis of partiality. Our salvation, as a reminder, is not based on any works, but it is all based on our faith in Jesus Christ. And so I want you to wrestle with this, because let's say Cornelius died. He didn't know the gospel. He wasn't a Jew. Would Cornelius have gone to heaven if he had died? This is, I mean, it's a valid question. I mean, I want you to think about this. He's a Gentile. He was raised apart from the law. Not only that, but it seems very clear that he doesn't know anything about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is his standing with God? It seems that within himself, he knows that there is something greater than just himself. And I believe that even that knowledge is God's grace to give that to him. But I want you to I want you to have a little bit more clarity than just that. Romans two says it a lot better than I can really think it. And it's going to be the explanation for many of the people in that time who died unable to hear the gospel, who were Gentiles who were not Jews, what their standing would have been. Because obviously God is doing something different during that time because these people had not heard the gospel. So we need to know what was happening to people who, didn't, who were not Jewish and who did not hear the gospel, but who devoted, who devoted themselves to God. Let's look at what Romans 2 and 14 says. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires. What is this? They are a law to themselves. Catch this. Even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written where? On their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts either accuse them or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It's beautiful, but he makes that point. It's almost like a pregnant pause. He says that instead of the gospel, the truth of the law being written on just tablets for them, he says it was written on their hearts. They by nature did what the law required. Do you think that this is just what God was trying to get to the Gentiles? No. He was trying to get that to his own people. What does God constantly call the Jews and the Israelites in the Old Testament? You rebellious and stiff necked people, because though they had the law, they didn't have it in their hearts. 
And they believed that because God had given them the oracles, because God had given it to Moses, because they could all trace down their genealogy back to Moses, back to Abraham, that they were excused. But what does Jesus say when he comes into that encounter with that centurion soldier who needs his friend to be healed? The first thing he says is, I came to the lost sheep of Israel. But then the very next thing he says, but I have not seen faith like yours in all of Israel. So while the Jews may have believed that they had a special position because God had given them the law. God is making it clear all throughout biblical scripture. It was never about who got the law. It was about who had it in their hearts. Cornelius, like so many of these other people, because they didn't have the veil of religion from the law. They didn't have all the ordinances. They didn't have all the sacrifices. They didn't do all the stuff that other people do. They had a true and genuine faith. And the moral law of God was written on their hearts. Now, naturally, you would think that because the Jews received the law, that they were in a better position. But we're told this cannot be the case. The Jews were never in a better position. And the reason we know that is because we are told in Scripture that God, in his impartiality, sees neither Jew nor Greek, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, bond nor free. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. So when Paul talks about the mystery of godliness, he's not talking about something that he doesn't know. He's saying something in eternity past that has been revealed to us. And that revelation that had been revealed to him is that it was always through Jesus Christ that we would be saved. It was always by faith and not by works. And that's why Paul is going to reach back in Romans 4. And tell us it was never about what we could do. So many of them thought that they were better off because they had been given the law, because they had been circumcised, because they had done all the things. But it wasn't that. Now, when this angel appears to Cornelius. He mentions something quite interesting here, and I want to make a point that we understand it. He says, for your alms, your sacrifices have gone up to God as a memorial to him. Which he's saying, though you are not a Jew, God has accepted your sacrifices. Now, the reason he uses this terminology is because when those sacrifices would go up, it would lead, lead out with a smoke and it was to be symbolic of a sweet aroma that's going to God, which is why the Bible says fornication is a different offering to God. It brings a stench to his nostrils, but a true sacrifice brings a sweet aroma to God. And so he says, the angel tells Cornelius, your, your sacrifice have been accepted by God. Why? Because they had come from a pure heart. He's not a Jew. He doesn't know the gospel. Yet God had accepted his sacrifices. And he tells him that because 
your sacrifices have been accepted, God has something for you to do. And so when we go on, he makes it clear for us, I think, that it's not the genealogy, it's not the qualifications, it's not what you do, it's not how hard you work. It is that if the sacrifice of God do not come from a pure heart, they will not be accepted. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter the relationship that your family members have. If you yourself do not have a pure heart before God, nothing you do will be accepted by God. Now, we think about the one who is accepted by God. We think about who is declared righteous by God. We know it has never been anybody who has good, pure deeds. The only people who have ever been accepted by God are the people who have a good, pure heart. Look at Romans chapter 4. I said I was going to go to it. Romans chapter 4, verse 9. Is this blessing, then, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Did you see that? It was to make him the father of all who believe, whether they were circumcised or not. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It's beautiful. There was nothing that Abraham had done in order to be declared righteous. He simply believed what God had spoken. In the same way, because God is impartial, we don't need to be circumcised. We don't need to be Jews. You don't need to be a Hebrew Israelite. All you have to do is believe in the redemptive and saving death of Jesus Christ and anybody can come to him. It's not restricted to one of us. All of us have equal opportunity on the basis of the salvation of Jesus Christ. And it's beautiful to understand that. Because without this revelation, not one of us ever has an opportunity to be saved. Not a single one of us. And so he makes this point. God declared him righteous before he did anything. And the only thing that circumcision means is that it is a symbol of what God had already done. 
It was symbolic of the declaration, the justification by faith of Abraham. But it is not the means by which he is declared righteous. So it is the case with us. Baptism does not save you. It is the sign of the salvation that has already occurred in your life. Now, I do want to make this point so that we can understand it before we leave today. That when the Jews are being circumcised, when the Jews are being told, even don't have markings and cuttings in your body, don't do this, don't eat specific types of things. When they're given the, the cleanliness laws and when they're given the other food laws, because there are many people who think that you still have to abide by these things, which this is partly what was going to happen in our text today. Those things were given to them because God had sanctified them and set them apart. But you remember when the Egyptians are leaving also with the Israelites, those who had been in captivity because they were Egyptian slaves as well. And as they're all leaving out of captivity of Egypt, they are told, the Israelites are, don't do what the Egyptians are doing. Now, was that because if they did it, they would defile themselves? Not necessarily. He's saying, don't do what they do because I have sanctified you. I have set you apart. But he didn't give the same instructions to the Egyptians. So that means, just in case you wonder where I'm going, that them not getting cuttings and markings and obeying the law that wasn't a mean of making them righteous. It was a means of keeping them set apart as his people. Why is that important? Because that also means that for the Egyptians who did have the cuttings and the markings, that that didn't negate the fact that they could be saved if they had faith in God. We have been worried so long about all the external realities of what will prevent a person from being saved. And the truth is, there's one thing that will prevent a person from being saved, and that's a wicked heart. It doesn't matter what your body looks like. It doesn't matter what the shape. It doesn't matter where you come from. All of us are one when we come to Christ. There's no partiality on his part. And so, as I close, it says, in our text from Romans 4, it says, when was he counted righteous? Was he counted righteous before or after he was circumcised? He was declared righteous before. Before. God wasn't waiting for him to do anything. God wasn't waiting for him to get in the right condition. It was his faith, the faith by which God made it possible for him to believe. This faith, by the way, Paul says, is not restricted to any group of people. This is one thing that God is showing us in how he's using Cornelius. That it doesn't matter where you come from. 
It does not matter what the genealogy is. It does not matter what your belief system was. All of us can have the saving faith of Jesus Christ if we only believe. Why is that significant? Because that's the only reason that any of us are Christians in the first place. Because we were not given the law. We were not Israelites. We were not Jews. And he's going to reveal this even more to Simon Peter. And so as I close, I do want to point something out as we're going to finish this up next time. I want to point something out about where Simon Peter is. The Bible says that go to Joppa, there's one Simon Peter, and he is in the house of Simon the Tanner. Now, I know y'all probably thinking, oh, yeah, all that heat out there in the Middle East, they probably getting real tan. Now, they kind of tanner. You ever heard the term, I'm going to tan your hide? That's what that means. So, Simon Peter, even before he gets this vision and revelation from God, he puts him in the house of a tanner. Now, those tanners, all they did all day long, their job was to handle the carcasses of animals. Which means, as a Jew, one, you're not supposed to even go in the house. Two, you definitely wouldn't even associate with a tanner. It's one of the most unclean jobs you can have. And so we see that God is already shaping and changing the way that Peter views those who are outside of the faith. But what we're going to see next time in the revelation that God gives Peter is that what I have called clean, don't you call uncommon. Now, when we hear that text, I'm not going to get to it because we're going to close here, but when we hear that text, a lot of us think that he's just talking about food. But he's not. Because all of us know that the Jews weren't just calling food unclean. They were calling everybody who wasn't a Jew unclean. And what God is going to show Peter, so beautiful, is that through Jesus Christ, I can clean anybody. I can make anybody in the filthiness of their sins, no matter how Black, those sins are, through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, I can make them white as snow. That is who Jesus Christ is. And that is our beautiful and impartial God who, by his impartiality and his sovereignty, has given us all equal opportunity for salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word today. Lord, we thank you that you are, in fact, the impartial God. That when you look at us, God, you do not look at the external factors of who we are. You do not look simply, God, or the external attributes of where we've come from or where we descended or how we look, God. But you look straight through all of that. You look beyond all of that and you look directly at the heart. Now, you know, if we have a heart that has not been redeemed by you, God, it doesn't matter where we come from. If we have not been saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, it's an equal playing field, God. 
So, Lord, my prayer today is that even as we have listened today, that you have revealed to us just how impartially good you are. And that we all have the same chance through your goodness and through faith to be saved. Lord, if there's anybody who's in here today or who's watching, who does not know you in the pardon of your, of your sin, of their sin, God. Who doesn't know you in the power of your death and resurrection, God. Lord, that this be the day that they hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing that on our own there is nothing that we can do apart from you to be saved. That we are born in a default position of hell. And that only the righteousness of Jesus Christ can save us. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done through your son. It is in the matchless name of Jesus Christ that we pray. And everybody said, amen.